welcome to box talks brand new look brand new episode uh yeah i just was just getting a little too hot for summer so i decided to bring it down to the least uh, amount of facial baggage <laughs> we have a really cool guest on the show today i speak to madeline crane now madeline crane has a company called climbing psychology if you go to their website uh they call themselves climbing gym for your mind and it is quite true it's it's even more like a spray wall for your mind it's it's, it's really a treasure trove of articles about uh, mental training and the psychology aspect of climbing which is so nuanced and so deep and goes in so many different directions the cool thing is it's not full of citations it's not overtly academic so it's very uh, digestible a little bit about her she is from austria she was a part of the youth national team she also competed on austria's adult team which should tell you a little bit about her caliber as a climber she is strong as they come she climbs 8a boulder uh and i hate reducing climbers the grades but that's just to give you an idea of the fact that she is a practicing strong active athlete who is studying psychology so clearly she has insight um at a very relevant level she consults with various youth teams climbing gyms and other entities basically she's a bit of a pioneer and an authority on the mental aspect of climbing and as of now her company is actually working on educating coaches now this was an area that i was interested in because i felt uh here in india the scene being as nascent as it is and really we have a bit of a shortage of coaches let alone coaching psychology i felt it would be really interesting to talk about the psychology of training kids now our sport coaching culture comes uh from a place of authority and discipline and a sort of work hard and don't crib about it so i wanted to get her insight into how changes have happened from this culture on a global scale uh, whether changes are necessary at all how coaches can work better especially with kids in the age groups of 8 to 10 and 10 to 12 that because i feel this is an age group that is genuinely going to be entering climbing a lot more in the future so if we kind of get it right with them then they go on to climb for life and it really opens up the population uh so many topics to delve into but i decided to keep this one as the core focus uh really good insight lots of questions uh that she answers some really interesting anecdotes and examples as well so take notes this is going to be a good one this is box talks with madeline crane of climbing psychology thank you so much first of all for you know you were so willing to do this interview and i can't tell you uh enough how valuable it is because sports psychology is relatively new in india and climbing psychology is just it's really at the deep end it's practically unheard of uh so you just bring a lot to the table and uh thank you so much for your time and your insight thank you so much for inviting me i'm super excited so what i actually wanted to discuss in particular and i've been through your website it's a bit of a treasure trove of information there's so many different articles speaking about so many different aspects of climbing across genders different age groups different uh core subjects one of the things that i felt would be particularly valuable to talk about is uh coaching because mm-hmm. it is in its infancy in india and i wanted your perspective on you know how 
it can go from just becoming training to more empathetic coaching and the value of that, especially on a group like kids. But if you don't mind, I would also just like to get a quick intro of uh, how you got into psychology in general. First of all, I'm really looking forward to talking about coaching because I absolutely agree with you. I think it's like such a valuable topic. And I think as a coach, you have such a big impact and you're such a role model. So if you're aware of this impact you have, you can actually change a lot and you can actually um, have a big impact on your athletes and support them in the best possible way, both physically and mentally. But yeah, before we um, get to this part, um, how did I get into psychology? I actually have to say that I got into psychology through climbing because I was competing myself um, during my whole youth period. And there was a time when I um, couldn't really perform so well anymore. And I felt really nervous. I constantly compared myself with others and... um, Eventually, at the age of 16, uh, my parents introduced me to a sports ecologist and I just actually really enjoyed what she was doing. And when I finished with school, I obviously had to to make the decision, what am I going to do next? And um, I thought back of the experience in psychology and what I absolutely loved about it is it's such a big field and it's so fascinating if you think about it just what makes us human it's our what makes us human and differentiates us from um from other from everything else is like that we can think we communicate um we feel emotions um we experience things in um a certain way and that's at the basic what psychology is. So at the basic what psychology is, it is um, about our human behavior, experience, our emotions, our uh, cognitions. So um, I just found that to be incredibly interesting. So, yeah, so that's how I started. And once I was finished, um, I was creating a network of a board of advisors and I did extracurriculars to become a sports psychologist. Um, I had intervision and then I decided like, how can I combine my passion of climbing with the passion of um, psychology? And that's actually how climbing psychology, um, yeah, developed. That's how it started. It's such a it's such a unique niche that you've occupied. Before you got into it, were there others, at least in Austria, your home country, were there others uh, specializing in climbing psychology, or was it something that was less academic and more uh, learnt by experience? That's a really interesting question. I was actually told to not go into sports psychology at all because I was told it doesn't make any money. And if I want to pay my bills, I should probably not become a sports psychologist at all. And um, so that's the first feedback I was given. And um, normally I I have a lot of um, sports psychologists in my network and also with whom I regularly um, have a chat and read discuss cases most of them aren't actually specialized into a specific field um and even worldwide of there are only very few who are very specialized on like one specific sport 
um, it's not that common, but I think it's like um, a huge opportunity because I do understand the psychology in climbing from a climber's perspective. I've even been coaching myself. Um, and on the other side, I only bring in the content from the psychology side. And when I'm working with athletes or even coaches, I understand their side, but I'm not actually taking over their expertise. So I'm not the expert in that moment for that coach. I always believe it's when I'm working with other people, like independently of whether they're now coaches or athletes, it's always two experts sitting um, next, uh, like in front of each other. And that's like one, the other person for themselves, for being an athlete or for being a coach and me from um, a psychology side. It's very interesting that it's reached this point because we've always known that I mean, a lot has been said about the mental side of climbing, you know, how mental fortitude is different. And in a competition, it's not necessarily the smartest, it's not necessarily the strongest climber, but the smarter one, the smartest one that wins. And even when you're kind of at your limit, when you're projecting hard, send anxiety. I get that. I get that a lot. A lot. (laughs) You know, when I know it's one thing if I'm trying something that's genuinely next level. Uh, I mean, there's a bit of freedom because I have this, yeah, well, what do I lose mentality? It's another if I'm trying something below my limit because I feel, oh, I should be able to do this. That confidence can affect me the wrong way sometimes because you underestimate the difficulty and the level of effort you need to put in. But nonetheless, you do go in with confidence. But when you know something goes from um, being a possibility to being a real possibility, I mean, it actually can happen. Then there's this added onus to make it happen because the ball is in your court and your court alone. So, and, and this has been the subject of climbing literature and talk for so long. Generations of uh, climbers have spoken about this. So it's really nice. I just want to say on behalf of you know, the climbing field, even though you're not India, thank you for your interest in this uh, subject matter because reading your website, whatever it is, there's always a bit of uh, information that we can process and gain from. But I wanted to get to talking about coaching since you mentioned that. So let me give you a picture of what the old coaching values are with sport here in India and where we are. And then you can give me your opinion on that. Largely, it comes and it is changing, but largely comes from a discipline first, authority first. Don't crib, don't whine work hard uh, sort of attitude. Mm-hmm. And I've observed from reading your website and generally whatever information I've gathered that this isn't the way climbing coaching is going across the world, especially with kids. Can you give me your opinion on why this style of coaching isn't particularly favorable? Before I say whether this is like good or not, like if you're a coach, I want um, it might be worth asking yourself two questions. The one question is, what are your what is your philosophy? What are your values and what is your goals? Because if you're a goal, um, if you're a coach and you like really value discipline and success and just um kids or youth athletes just following your what you say um 
the question is, how do you communicate this with your athletes? So don't make it up to you for them to follow you, but communicate your values, your philosophy, your goals with them because then they know what to expect. And if they're really fine with that, if they actually want to uh, be um, in a field where discipline is really important, where they are just told what to do and they're where authority plays a big role and they actually like being um, led like that, then they would actually still come to your training group and they would still want to train with you. So first of all, like, I think it's really important that you're aware that uh, we are aware of what are our values and then communicate them like that. Because for some people out there, this might actually be like something they actually can relate to and what they actually like doing. Um, But on the other hand, then there's the second question. So if you're aware of your values, you've communicated them and you know what your philosophy is and all of your kids and all of the parents and all of the youth athletes know these values as well and they've decided to actually still stick with you. There's still a second question you should ask yourself. If you were a kid right now or if you were a youth athlete, how would you like to be treated? Would you like to be um, a kid in your training group? Would you like to be treated in an authorized, um, disciplined way? So I'll try to answer your question or offer some perspective. Um, What happens is, you know, the only reference that someone from a previous generation has is the way that they've been coached. And uh, empathy within sports coaching is out here, it's a newer thing. It's, um, it was once looked at as something soft, you know, being nice to one of your athletes, being consoling. It was looked at as, oh, you're not being tough enough. I mean, tough love is a type of philosophy that has dominated sports coaching for a while and it hasn't left. So at least here, that was, if that is your reference, oh yeah, I was coached like this. So, you know, why shouldn't you be? then there is that disconnect when you have an athlete from a different generation who's looking for a different uh, type of response. But on the other hand, you only know how to give one. How do you overcome that? That's a really um, interesting question. So um, what I mentioned before is, so if you start reflecting yourself and your own values, your own, like, how do you want to be treated? you can still think back, even if you're a different generation, and it's like, did you actually always enjoy um, the training? Did you actually have fun? Um, because we all we know that if climbers don't inherently enjoy training, being in the group, um, or even competing, or climbing for fun, if they don't enjoy that, the dropout rate is incredibly high. Um, and at the end of the day, it's always the question that you need to ask yourself. Yes, if you want to compete, discipline is incredibly important. But at the same time, um, if you overrule your athletes with setting goals for them, and if you tell them what to do constantly, without in, regardless of what their goals and their ambitions are, 
they are probably not inherently enjoying this because they don't have an opinion. They don't actually get to say what they want. So empathy is a little bit of, you can imagine this as the bridge between like, these are my goals as a coach and these are my goals as an athlete. And empathy creates this connection. It's like, yes, my values, my goals as a coach is this, but what are yours? And so by taking the athlete seriously, being empathetic and trying to understand their ambitions, I think you can actually get a lot further because it gives the athletes um, um, telling them that they're important too. Their goals matters. Their opinion matters. They are taken seriously. And it's really interesting because I've been working with a lot of youth athletes. I've been working with a lot of kids athletes. Even I think my youngest athlete ever was eight years old. And you would imagine that an eight-year-old is not able to be really self-reflective and know what, um, know what she wants. And I was really surprised because working with her back then, she, she's older now, but uh, when she was eight years old, I was every single time so surprised that she knew so well what she wanted. She knew so well uh, what she needed um, and what actually helped her to be mentally stronger. And it was a really fun game working with her because me letting her have this opinion and giving her a voice to speak out what she needed actually helped her to grow as an athlete. And I think that's really valuable for coaches to realize these athletes, a lot of times, if you ask them and if you give them the voice, um, they know very well what they need. And if you let them talk about this, they can actually tell you how you can support them in the best possible way. And that's, again, where empathy creates this bridge between like a good and, and creates a good athlete-coach relationship, I believe. I want to go, um, you spoke about training an eight-year-old. So using that as an example, I want to go a little deeper into the, the positive effects so or just the effects in general of empathy when working with children, because adult athletes are one thing and it's a little hard to exercise raw authority on them or, you know, just get them to discipline themselves and so on. But in your experience as a psychologist, <clears throat> what have you seen uh, empathy achieve with kids? Can I quickly ask you, if you talk about kids athletes, are we talking about, let's say, like six to 10 year olds or to 12 year olds? Or are we talking about um, youth athletes in their teens? I'd like to focus a little bit on six to 10 and 10 to 12, because I feel in the coming years, this is um, the age group of children that will be entering climbing in India. And I feel if their entry into it is done well, you know, it becomes a life sport. Otherwise it becomes a thing that they do and then they move out of it. Mm -hmm. I feel if we get this right, then you can get the upper stages right as well. It's really interesting because I believe there's a lot happening in this age group and there is actually studies on this. It's actually made with parents, but I do believe it actually fits for coaches as well, that kids were asked why they believe their parents send them to competitions. Mm. Maybe you want to have a guess. 
what, what do you think? Or, or like kids, kids thinking why their parents, but this actually also probably is true for their coaches, send them to competitions. Oh, it's so hard. There's so many um, social and cultural aspects. Okay, I'll take a quick guess. Perhaps, generally speaking, distinction to prove that their kids are capable of something uh, that they're better than the playing field around them. And then perhaps that will in turn give them opportunities in the future. The kids think that. No, the parents. Okay. No, what do you think the kids think? Why their parents? So, sorry. Probably <laughs> no, no, no. Um, why the kids think? Because their parents... Uh, because their parents didn't get a chance to do this and hence they would like to see live it out through their kids. Mm-hmm. It's really funny that you say this because actually a lot of times this is true maybe for their parents, like fulfilling their own childhood dream. But kids believe the only reason why parents send them to competitions is to have fun. And this, it's so simple. It's really fascinating because these are, this, this is a study made with kids. It was a study made with eight to 10 year olds. Kids believe the parents just want them to compete, to have fun. And now we actually think about why do uh, parents or, and let's take coaches in this matter as well. Why do coaches send kids to competitions? It's a lot of time not to just have fun. It's to learn to compete. So a lot of times there is a bit discrepancy between like what do the kids want, what do um, the parents want, or what do even the coaches want. And it's really interesting if you look at this particular age group. um, They like competing. They like comparing themselves to others. They are like for them in their age group to be – in a fair competition, it is incredibly important. You might have even experienced this if you train kids like that and you make a game in your training. And um, there is like one little thing that might be unfair because the route they had to compete against each other was slightly different. They would actually talk about this immediately and they would tell you immediately and tell you off for it. Like, oh, Dylan, you made this really unfair. This was not a fair competition. So fair being fair and equal is so important to them and then just having fun and um the questions that they ask themselves um in this like the let's say the psychological questions that are really important at this age is like am i happy am i supported by my parents by my coaches and um Am I, do I perceive pressure and am I over, what is, what is the name? Am I like overtaxed or understimulated? Because neither of that is really good. So, well, they don't ask themselves, am I like overtaxed with the tasks I'm given? But these are the inherent questions that they ask themselves at this age. And um, like just asking these questions you might already realize it's a lot less about solely competing and solely discipline and solely um, um, performance and authority. All of a sudden, if you know that these, if you try to better understand these kids and psychological, what the needs are based on their age and how to develop, the focus 
all of a sudden shifts from like how far do I really get with the authority and really being disciplined to actually how much how much further would I potentially get if I actually am empathetic, if I was actually listening to them. And how do you feel coaches can better listen? Because this age group is a little tricky, right? Um, if, if you have a group of five or six kids, they can be a little unruly. It's a little difficult to get a bit of uh, what structure doesn't always work. How do you feel coaches can listen without being overtly authoritative? And I stress authority because that is often looked at as a mechanism of communication? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question because um, I personally wouldn't rule out like they, you can still be empathetic and disciplined. You can still be like to hold this group together, like really in that moment to a cer- certain point, even authoritarian. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think these do. things actually um eliminate each other so you still particularly with smaller kids i do agree with you it can be hard they're probably all over the place and it's just like say discipline is actually good and it's actually even recommended to a certain point but still having empathy at the same time and being aware of yeah as i've said just before i'm repeating myself but like being aware of the psychological needs of this particular age group it's um let's get into their psychological needs if i'm looking at a 9 year old you know someone who's active who's looking for a sport and then they get into climbing there is clearly a sense of competition and i've seen this with kids as well i've seen this in my 5 year old i mean he competes with himself a lot there's mm-hmm. a there's a lot of i want to try and do better than i was than i did in my previous attempt um but at the same time, in a group, there's a chance that you may have someone who isn't as outgoing or who isn't as competitive. Uh, how would you balance the two energies? That's a really good question. Um, I do believe, for example, that, okay, I don't know whether I pronounce this the right way, but homogenic? Homogenous, yeah. Homogenous uh, yeah. groups um, or training groups are actually important. So because if you have probably, I would probably have to think about whether it is already makes sense at the age of nine, 10, because a lot of times it's actually important to explore a lot, to playfully learn a lot of different things. And competition arises naturally and is um, naturally supported at, at this age group anyway. But the older you get the more important these homogenic training groups become so to make to differentiate between um okay this is the group that wants to train for competitions and um wants to actively just work on a project whatever this is to get like strong outdoors or as i've said just being um, a competitor versus um climbing just for fun and not having these ambitions to be like just getting better all the time. And um, because it can be frustrating for both. If you're like in a training group and the, 
and like I just want to climb for fun and everyone else trains it can be really frustrating for me and eventually I'll, I'll probably also like fall back I won't be as strong so the com- the natural social comparison that will happen will probably frustrate me as well at some point everyone else is stronger than me they all train they have different vibes so it actually has an impact on me because I probably don't really feel comfortable in this group and the other way for example if someone that wants to compete is in a group of uh, recreation climbers and you just do it for fun this person probably doesn't feel happy either because like oh I should actually do this and this is on my training plan no one really does it with me everyone else is just like oh let's just climb just for fun and both of the things are near good or bad the important thing is always like what do I want to achieve in climbing what's my goals and where do I find um where where do I find this environment that actually suits my goals and that's again where we started at before where we are with the goals um, and values and philosophies of coaches because there are some coaches out there that actually want to be competition coaches and want athletes to get better and they would probably go best along with athletes that want the exact same thing but if they train if these coaches never communicate their values and their philosophy and then they're training with a group of um athletes that actually just want to climb for fun both of them are going to go like are probably going to be really frustrated at some point because they don't actually get what they want and want to what their goals are focus areas essentially what you're talking about if you mix focus areas one feels under challenged and the other feels over challenged and it doesn't end up being a happy space but let's take a group where you have let's just say six or seven kids and they're all training for competitions and dealing with comparisons i think that at some point in adults and kids it becomes the hardest thing to do there are kids who feed off being better and they get a high off it and that gives them the sort of energy to push harder and harder but there are others who feel um sidelined and as a quote sideline sideline meaning they feel like uh, they feel not worthy oh i'm not i'm not worth it i'm never going to get as good as him and i've seen this play out quite a lot of times you know given that competitions themselves are sort of built to facilitate ranking and uh the body language of people in the gym uh when you walk in after you win a medal everyone's like oh hey you know there's all these little things um that kids are experiencing on a daily basis they may not be able to put words to it so my question here is how can a coach balance this out the social comparisons yeah the you know the tendency children tend to compare themselves to each other performance wise and how can a coach create a healthy environment where okay it may happen but your self esteem isn't based on it mhm that is a really good question and probably we could talk about this in particular probably for analysis right so for it. yeah please <laughs> So um so okay where to start how can a coach foster an environment where 
um, comparisons that naturally happen and it is even fostered by social media like crazy um, are not taken negatively. So one first step is actually to teach the athletes that their value is not dependent on the results are not dependent on external factors, but they're good the way they are. And they have strength both as a climber and as a person. Um, and if they don't perform, this doesn't mean that they're a bad person. So I find it incredibly important um, to communicate that we all we all have our different strengths. We all have our different, like, and um, just because we don't do well in compare in comparison to others, it doesn't make us uh, less valuable. Um, there is actually one funny exercise actually that just comes to my mind. I don't know whether it fits in like hundred percent, but I to to give you the idea of like that our value doesn't change even in comparison to others. You can try this with the athletes. Um, I don't have a hundred euro note lying around right now, and I don't know. I don't actually know what you pay in um, India with rupees. Rupees. Oh, I should rupees, have actually yeah. known. That. Yeah. But okay, <laughs> convert that. Like hundred euros is quite a lot of money. It's not so like it's not. Yeah, it, it always depends. It it's a lot or not. But just imagine I was holding and have this piece of paper. This was like hundred euros right now, mm. and. Um, if I was just like, I gave it to you, would you take it? I just like, there is no condition on that. I just would give it to you like that. You gotta say I mean, yes. Um, <laughs> now I feel put in a spot. Um, would I say yes? It depends, you know, because I would always think I would be apprehensive. That's my honest answer. I would try to ask you a question as to why you're giving it yeah, yeah. to me or and- what I've done to deserve it. Something okay. like that. Okay. But like if it was like hundreds of years, like you would still believe that's like a lot of money, it's fine, and the value of this is like really good. Okay, what about if I actually took this hundred year now? This is the value of it. Would you still want it? It's still a hundred years right there. It's just like um it's crumpled up yeah crumpled up you still want okay i don't just like leave it like that i'll take this fictive um 100 years and i just throw it in the mud and i stand on it would you still want it are you asking me to answer um do you still like consider it worth 100 years Nothing has changed. It's just crumpled up and it's just like a bit dirty, which you can probably wash off. If I want to give you an honest answer here, um, the crumpling and the dirt and the mud doesn't bother me. But but again, um, I wouldn't reach out for money just like that. For example... if it's a pair of climbing shoes or if it's a, if it's a cool t-shirt or something like that, I'm giving you an honest answer. If it's dirty, if it's crumpled up, 
I would still be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still like the print on that. I still like it. I take it. Perfect. I just took it with money because it's like really easy. It says a number on there mm-hmm. and we see like the value, but you actually just gave me the answer. Like you would still consider it worth a hundred years. And that is actually like, if you transfer that metaphor, like our value doesn't decrease or isn't different, whether we do well, whether we compare ourselves and whether we might fail. You know what I mean? And I find it really important for coaches to teach this to their athletes that they are valued as the person they are and they have different strengths. We have actually, um, to give you an example, we have, um, I'm working with um, a youth team um, sports psychologically and in climbing and it's a really strong team and there's just like so a 14 year old has just climbed her first 8c at outdoors and they're just really pushing each other and they're really they're really strong like another one has just climbed his first 9a and they're just incredible and there's one girl um who is not a hundred percent like as strong as the others. I think she's incredibly important for the community of the climbing, but she always feels like she's worth less. And she always feels like, oh, like this lack of confidence, like I don't really fit in, everyone is stronger than me. And she often like pulls herself or withdraws herself and doesn't feel comfortable um, in the team. And of course, also the coach has started talking to me about it. And um, yeah. And her issues is exactly the one that you've just explained before through the so com- through through the constant social comparison. She's actually started like believing that she's like, oh, I'm not such a good climber. I don't really fit in. And what I worked on with her was exactly like realizing what is her worth, like and realizing like even if she's not um, maybe as strong as the others she still brings a lot of value to the team and it doesn't actually change her joy of climbing. And so we tried to refocus on not um, what her, um, how do I say, like what she's not as good as, but focusing on what is she actually good at. And this is, again, something that coaches can do to not foster this comparison but give feedback give particular also like in such cases like positive features positive feedback to reinforce their strengths what they're good at that you still appreciate them um as a climber and as a person as a part of the team and um for example um not just say like oh you were the only one didn't, uh, not able to climb this this particular route, um, or you did this to uh, you did this badly. Where she again is put in a comparison, but rather focus on what her effort was. And if you get away from as a coach, then in such situations, if you get away from end results, but rather appreciate the effort put in, you can actually create a climate like that where the end result doesn't matter and where social comparisons don't matter because athletes learn that they are appreciated for who they are and for what effort they put in and not just like 
whether they finally send an aid seat at the age of 14 or not. There's so much of um, comparison already happening in society, yeah. right? Uh, out here, it's what you score in your exams. Examination pressure is massive. Um, as you hit puberty and as you get a little older, it's how you dress, how you look, the crowd that you're seen with, uh, the school or college that you gain an admission into, the job that you get, how much money you earn, and practically everything is competitive. Everything. And India is now, it's a bit of a growing economy, so this sense of wanting to be one up over the other is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen this so much in schools. When I was in school, it was, it, was, it was a competitive environment, generally speaking. And so I feel climbing uh, or sport in general may have to do a little bit of extra work to work as a bit of a detox towards this type of situation. There's questions at home about how much you've scored. Uh, your friends are judging you or people are looking at you based on the way you dress and so on. So do you feel uh, with the athletes that you work in that they look to climbing for sanctuary from this, from a competitive society in general? Or I'm just asking, it needn't be the same, but I'd like some insight. I'm not 100% sure whether I understood the question. Do you, like, maybe you can repeat it, but if I got it right, is it about how the climbers I work with, what they focus on and how they see climbing as what it is instead of like oh no maybe you just repeat the question okay, I'll, I'll give it to you and, uh, i'll give it to you in short right <laughs> i thought i'll add a bit of context but here it is um yeah. do they look at it as a bit of an escape from the pressure they're facing elsewhere to be competitive whether it's school or in their social circles and so on hmm, that's a good question i'm not quite sure whether i could answer it because I would probably need to ask them. That's again where we are. Like I believe they're the experts for themselves. But from what I gather, most of them, well, climbing by itself is, I believe, by its nature, always like a mental escape a little bit. Because in climbing, you have to be so focused. If you think about anything else, you're just off the ball immediately. So just going climbing can actually be like this little break from everything else, whether that's the social comparison, whether that's the pressure we experience. That's why I believe it's also one of the best sports, um, not only for competitive climbers, but also for, um, yeah, recreational climbers. And so for competitive climbers, I don't think that's um, contradictive. I don't think that's actually... um, because it's actually a really good thing if they if you really enjoy something if you can really switch off if you can be real, really focused you can still be in that matter competitive i don't think that actually goes against each other but to answer your question i'm not quite sure how they perceive it in particular or whether, whether they consciously consciously have thought about this um escape it was just a question uh, that i thought was was worth throwing out there from the context over here, you spoke a little bit about social media earlier, how kids do come under pressure. Now, this is something I'm interested in looking into because the generation of people who coach, let's just say they're in their 30s or their 40s, many of them were not born into social media. There's, you know, 
their psychological development and their foundation happened before social media came. How important do you feel it is for coaches working with kids to understand social media and its effect? I think, to be very honest, coaches have such an important role in general. And our world is always developing in like so fast. So I think it doesn't matter what job we do. We always have to educate ourselves on the current issues. And this means as a coach to also maybe educate um, themselves as mentioned before about the need, psychological needs, if you have so far only focused on the physical needs um, of kids and youth climbers, this means educating yourself as a coach about the current struggles by our society or social media um, that is um, impacting athletes. Because as you said yourself, social media is... Um, perils and perks both of it because mm. I do believe still social media is a huge opportunity in so many cases for the first time it's you can speak out about what you need what you want you, it's using as a platform to promote yourself to become um, even like a more of a professional it's actually a really good opportunity but at the same time there's also like um, the perils coming with it, the disadvantages like cyberbullying or just this constant comparison constantly, particularly Instagram. You just always see what everyone else does, how perfect everyone is and what where everyone goes on a holiday and how great their life is. There is a, like not much vulnerability happening on Instagram. Um, so I do believe that coaches need to be aware of um, aware of the perks and perils both. Um, but at the same time, I also want to focus on saying like there's so much you can do and not do as a coach. It's a huge responsibility. And it like the challenges you have to face as a coach, they're like really big as well so um it's really important to always like remind yourself okay what is actually in your control what can you actually change what can you influence and what is potentially out of your influence you can have a talk about social media you can actually be aware of the perks and perils you can actually have an open discussion about it and maybe pass your knowledge on to your athletes but at the end of the day this is not in your control how they deal with it. And independently of what we talked about today, I always find it important to, I think one of the most important skills you have as a coach is being self-reflective. That's also, by the way, I think the most important psychological skills for athletes. But if we talk about coaches, it's so important that you know um, what you can change, what you can impact, what your role is, what you can control and influence and what you can't control and what you can't influence because this causes a lot of stress. If you as a coach just always focus on something that you actually cannot change anyway because it's out of your control. The reason I asked that was uh, 
it's sometimes easy to look at a 12 or a 13 year old getting incredibly um, upset and having their entire session derailed over a single Instagram post or a story. They look at it and they just feel like, oh, and it completely upsets them. And it's kind of easy to go into this headspace of, oh, you know, I don't know why Instagram affects this generation so much, particularly because your generation has not had to deal with it. Um, and I was asking, you know, how or why it's important for a coach to put themselves into their athletes' shoes and be like, I may not have had to deal with this, but this impacts them. So let me not judge whether this is trivial or whether my generation had it better, but let me just first try to focus on what that is doing to them as a person. This is really important. So that's one thing. I do believe coaches should educate themselves on social media because it's just here and everywhere. I also believe that um, like educating, for example, athletes themselves, like organizing maybe like a, a workshop where they learn, where the athletes learn about social media and talk about it openly. But like this example you've just talked about um, just now is really important because here we are again with empathy. Empathy doesn't mean that you have experienced this particular situation yourself, but just understanding that someone else's emotions are actually valuable and valid. So this empathy means that I actually there's a saying like I feel you it's like I understand you're feeling it's okay that you're feeling like this this can be really upsetting do you want to talk about it do you want to tell me more about it and not just push their emotions away um so empathy is actually in that case incredibly important because a lot of times like uncomfortable emotions are by both athletes and um coaches just pushed away it's like you're not allowed like or for you're not allowed to feel like this. This is really like disrupting the training right now. Like just like focus and come back to training. And as an athlete from this perspective, like, Oh, I'm not allowed to talk about this right now. It's really bothering me. I'm like, whatever, frustrated or really anxious. I feel incredibly ashamed because someone said something really bad about me on social media, but I'm not allowed to feel this. So they try to push it away. And from both perspectives, pushing emotions away is never really healthy because they will come back eventually, like bigger and even more intense. But what I always try to teach those my athletes is emotions are not negative, uh, like necessarily bad. And I think you should actually understand this both as an athlete and as a coach. So because emotions are actually communicators that try to tell us something. And if we, for example, empathetic and tell athletes that they are allowed to feel the way they feel, they can talk about it. And maybe they can just ask them, okay, what's this trying to, this emotion trying to tell you? Like, what would help you right now? Um, what would you like to talk about right now? It's like, how do you feel if you could just like let off some steam right now? If you just like really empathetic and ask such open questions to your athletes, you doing the opposite. You're not pushing these emotions away, but you're just actually valuing um, them plus the person. And I can guarantee you that these athletes would actually 
feel a lot better both about themselves and about the situation. So I feel like, to be honest, about this topic of how to be more empathetic and how to be more like understanding the emotions of your athletes, we could probably talk about this a lot longer as well. And I don't know what it fits at this point, but um, I'm actually planning um, coach educational classes for coaches where I address specific topics just as like emotional contagion how to better deal emotionally and actually how to add um, how to better coach youth athletes as as a coach because why I think it's so important that we talked about this today is I like as a coach you see your athletes all of the time so much more regularly a lot of times than a sports psychology does so if a coach is actually equipped with the knowledge and some mental tools how to better mentally support their athletes, I believe you could achieve or we could all together achieve so much more. So, yeah, if you're interested, um, I'm currently planning on um, launching this coach education classes. I don't know, maybe this is interested from some coaches you know as well because I think um, I put some um, both theoretical knowledge plus like the practical knowledge um, I've gained over the past year. So examples and athletes I've been dealing with um, into this course. So sorry for this little advertisement. No, <laughs> no, not at all. It was um, <laughs> it's one of the things I saw on your website that I consider super interesting because I feel, especially in climbing, you know, it's, um, it's seen this graduation of uh, people going from being, seniors and mentors to trainers to coaches and you know coaches occupy a more uh, wholesome role and especially as regards the group that we're talking about you know kids the young they're vulnerable this is the kind of stuff that is immensely valuable so please no apologies needed for the ad (laughs) Um, but since you spoke about creating an environment where it's easy to share and you put the ball in your athletes uh, court and ask them, okay, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to let some steam off? When, when they just hit puberty, you know, 12, 13, whatever, uh, they start coming into romantic feelings. They start coming into sexual maturity. And this can be a really delicate time period, which the effects of which you do see even in the way they engage with the sport. So my question here is, how important is it for a coach uh, to be there and create an environment where, you know, it's okay for a young girl to talk about a boy she likes or to talk about a boyfriend? Because this often becomes this kind of taboo subject um, where these kids have nowhere to go to hear a supportive voice and they're kind of negotiating this part of their lives, uh, their lives all by themselves. Do you think it's important? And if so, how should a coach be going about this, providing support in this direction? That's a really interesting question. I absolutely think it's important. It's actually from my experience as a coach, particularly if you train girls, they already get the more empathy is needed. And you just said yourself, the needs are actually changing. And um, like 
if they want to talk about like and as a like if they want to talk about uh, a boy this is probably so much on their mind at the moment and they probably can't focus on anything else like forget the training if they're occupied in that moment just like does he like me or does he not or he ditched me or i feel really bad about this or i ditched him it's probably better to just like maybe five minutes if you have the time obviously time is really valuable you might not always have the time but if you have the time just give them like a voice just um uh listen to them and let them talk about it and you'll realize that the training afters once they've talked about it they've let off some steam they've talked about it and then they will probably continue um training just as normal and they can focus again um i at this point i would say that like the older athletes get so if like as a kid for kids parents and siblings and friends are the most important reference people the coach doesn't play such an important role but the older the athletes get never underestimate their role and the impact as a coach because all of a sudden it's not the parents who are their first reference person but it's actually the coach so never underestimate the impact that you have you serve as a role model right there particularly for youth athletes who as you just said, you have different questions and needs and you developing your own identity. So you don't want to be connected to anything from childhood, but you still want to have role models. So where you can orientate yourself, um, so to speak, what's good, what shall I do and what not. So um, it's really important that as a coach, you become aware of like, you actually have an important role. You're a role model. Madeline, this was uh, super insightful and, you know, it's a never ending well of subject matter that you can go into, but I will leave you with the topic uh, that I had in mind so you can think about it and maybe we can connect for another chat, which is the dynamic that coaches need to maintain with the parents of the athlete. Um, so really yeah, let's try and do part two on that, but thank you so much for your time. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and for this like really fascinating conversation of all, all the input and all the practical examples you've given. It made it really joyful for me as well. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>